Welcome to A Hard Look, the Administrative Law Review podcast from the Washington College of Law. We'll discuss how administrative law impacts your daily life, from regulatory actions by agencies and the litigation over them to the balance of power among branches of the government. This is A Hard Look. Welcome to Episode 2 of A Hard Look. On today's episode, we will be discussing executive power and what it can do to help build a regulatory infrastructure of inclusion. To do this, we will be guided by Professor Olatunde Johnson with her piece, The Equity EO, Building a Regulatory Infrastructure of Inclusion, which was published in the Spring 2021 edition of the American Bar Association's Administrative and Regulatory Law News. Professor Johnson is a Jerome B. Sherman Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. Her decorated career has won her many awards, winning both the Columbia Law School's Willis L. M. Reese Prize for Excellence in Teaching, as well as the Public Interest Professor of the Year Award. In addition to her teaching accolades, Professor Johnson brings an incredible list of professional feats. She has clerked for Justice John Paul Stevens of the United States Supreme Court and Judge David Tatel on the United States District Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. She also has triad and appellate-level litigation experience, where she worked at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and worked as well as a senior consultant on racial justice at the ACLU's National Legal Department. As a disclaimer, the views of our guests are her own, and they're not a reflection of that of her or employer, organizations, or other parties in which her opinions could be imputed. With the help of Professor Johnson, we will map the foundations of executive power engage in a discussion on current events that have contributed to the necessity in administering President Biden's Executive Order 13985, and conclude with a discussion of where we go from here under this order. Professor Johnson, welcome to A Hard Look. So 2020 is, is recent to all of us, and it's represented more than just global pandemic. It has generated a larger national conversation about social and racial justice issues that have yet to be remedied. The killing of George Floyd was the spark that largely ignited this debate. How have the events of 2020 played into the creation and language of the Biden administration's approach to social and racial inequity issues? Thank you for the question, Stephen. 2020 opened up a conversation, um, and I think it's really a conversation about how all institutions, public and private, contribute to racial inequality in the United States. These conversations went well beyond policing and criminal justice to really look at a range of institutions, housing, healthcare, education, and how they all contribute to racial inequality. And I think the pandemic had a role to play too. COVID, as many people know, had a profound effect on communities of color. It's continuing to have a profound effect, really laid bare underlying conditions of inequality. And so soon after Biden um, was inaugurated, his administration announced that it would take an affirmative approach to addressing racial and ethnic inequalities. And in particular, the administration announced it would use the power of the federal government to remedy current inequalities, as well as to promote opportunity and inclusion. So I think that's how 2020 really set the stage for this kind of executive action that we're going to talk about today. Thank you. So, and obviously, as we now know, with the hindsight of history behind us, Executive Order 13985 has come out. Um, what are the specifics of this order that the Biden administration is seeking to do? 
Yeah, it's it's kind of a mouthful to get it out, right? The executive orders, but I'll say the the the, the number. Um, it's Executive Order thirteen nine eighty five, and it was one of the first acts of um, President Biden's administration. It's called the Racial Equity and Support for Underserved Communities through the Federal Government um, Executive Order, and. And generally speaking, what this EO does is that it requires the White House and federal agencies to take a systematic approach to embedding fairness um, in decision making and to examine and redress inequities in their policies and programs that serve as a barrier um, to equal opportunity. Um, I can go on to really explain some of the components of it. Um, I think we can break it down to really three things that it does. Um, first is that it requires what's known as an equity assessment. Um, and that's a direction to federal agencies to conduct assessments of their own agencies um, to determine how their programs can better serve um, underserved communities and that their programs are operating fairly on the basis of race, ethnicity, religion, and other categories. And just in achieving that goal of the equity assessment, it charges the White House's Domestic Policy Council to help coordinate these efforts to ensure that equity principles are embedded in the federal government. It also has a role for the Office of Management and Budget um, to help develop ways of assessing how agencies are meeting these equity goals and to collect data needed to achieve these equity assessments. A second thing that the EO does is that it tries to ensure that government resources are fairly allocated to underserved communities. So it directs agencies to really pay attention to historic failures to invest equally in communities, um, as well as to promote fair and equal access going forward. Um, and this can be in lots of different domains. It requires examining the budget submitted to Congress and really looking at that budget and figuring out whether or not resources are being allocated fairly. Um, it extends to designing and allocating contracting and procurement opportunities on a, in a way that promotes opportunity and inequality. And then a third component of the EO is how it requires that agencies um, really receive input um, from members of underserved communities. So in designing programs and policies and doing rulemaking, it wants to hear um, from, from underserved communities and directs agencies to, to collect information and get input. As you mentioned, President Biden wanted to use the power of the federal government to, to achieve a lot of these initiatives. Could you define for us how, what is an executive order? Where does this authority stem from and what purposes does it generally try and serve? Yeah, an executive order is a, a written directive from the president that manages the operation of the federal government and directs enforcement of federal law in a particular way. And every president has issued an executive order during their time in office, and they can concern a broad range of topics. I mean, some of them are quite narrow and specific, and we don't even talk about them in the context of a podcast. They don't really um, warrant or attract that much public attention, but some are quite consequential. I mean, President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation through an executive order. Um, President Truman desegregated the military through an executive order. And um, more notoriously, the directive that authorized internment of Japanese people in World War II was an executive order. An executive order. So presidents can't write law, but 
the structure of Article Two of the Constitution and other provisions of the Constitution do give the president chief power over the executive functions of government. Um, in addition, um, Article Two um, directs that the president um, should take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Um, so this is what gives the president authority to issue an executive order, and they can do it as long as it doesn't conflict with other federal laws or with the Constitution. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, you wrote an incredible piece discussing President Biden's executive order, and in it you identified three noteworthy aspects. First, you identify that the order announces an affirmative and proactive role for federal agencies in addressing inequities. Second, you noted that the order announces an obligation to advance equity as a role of every federal agency. And lastly, that it seeks to cover an expansive range of federal processes. Could you expand on each of these and discuss the significance that each element has? Yeah, and these components are really related. Um, they're all, at least as I conceptualize them, they're all about embedding equity. So the EO is affirmative, um, as you mentioned, and that means it goes beyond the idea that agencies should not discriminate. Um, that's not enough is what it's implicitly saying. It's saying that agencies have to engage in proactive steps to assess barriers and transform their practices to promote equity. And there's precedent for this approach, this affirmative approach in, in civil rights. Um, an example is the, the Fair Housing Act, um, which requires federal agencies and federal grantees to take affirmative steps to promote fair housing, um, which means equal housing opportunity and integration. And this came out of Congress's um, recognition in 1968 of the role that federal agencies had played in causing racial segregation. Um, today, more recently, over the last 20 years, some agencies, such as the Department of Transportation, they've had regulations requiring the federal grantees assess the racial, ethnic, and disability impact of their transit decisions and take steps to promote inclusion. So I've called these types of statutes and regulations equality directives, and the, a key part of this is that they require that agencies take these affirmative steps as a matter of practice without waiting for a complaint or a lawsuit. The second point I emphasize in the piece is that this executive order extends this equality directive notion that I just mentioned to a broader range of federal agencies. Um, so it's not just fair, fair housing, it's not just transportation, um, it applies broadly to federal agencies that deal with health care, social welfare programs, tax, and so on. And then a last um, aspect of it is that it appears, at least in how it's written, to require examination of an extensive range of policies, um, such as how is the program designed, who is able to enroll, um, what are the rulemaking processes? Who benefits from procurements and contracts? So this overall, this embedding equity approach is what's really novel about the EO. So since equity is the focal point of this executive order, how can we define it and then use it to advance the policy of this order? Yeah, equity is a broad term, and I still think that we're going to need further guidance um, at the agency level. Um, to know what equity means and how it's going to be assessed under the EO. 
And there are a range of possibilities. I mean, probably the thinnest way to evaluate equity is to say that it means the absence of categories of formal discrimination, which means that you can't discriminate on the basis of race, gender, or some other characteristic. But as I've suggested already, um, the language of the EO goes broader than that. Um, it talks about removing barriers and providing opportunity. So it's not just talking about formal or explicit forms of discrimination or even intentional discrimination or disparate treatment. Another way of measuring equity might be through disparate impact. And this is a very familiar notion to many in the civil rights area. Um, it has a very specific meaning. It means practices or policies that you can identify um, that lead to a statistically significant impact on a group and for which there's not a good justification. And most observers would say this is more expansive um, than formal and intentional discrimination. It can get at a broader range of action, but it still can be quite hard to show since you have to prove causation and really examine the reasons offered in um, a way that really narrows your ability to get at um, changes that uh, promote opportunity. So I think it's still a big question what approach to equity is going to be taken. Um, one approach that I would suggest is to assess the impact of a program in statistical terms as a starting point. Um, use that as a starting point. Is there some sort of um, impact on a particular group? Um, and use that as a point for asking questions about what kinds of design changes or alternatives might mitigate that impact and provide for greater forms of inclusion. And um, in some ways that builds on the disparate impact approach, but extends it um, uh, further. And I think it would also be important um, to assess impact, not just in terms of traditional quantitative measures, which are of course very important, but also think of qualitative measures of, inclu of inclusion where this is possible. Um, developing survey instruments, um, and this would have the additional benefit of linking to the engagement um, that the EEO wants to promote. Um, and community engagement can also sometimes help identify alternative practices that might be more inclusive. You know, thinking about always what comes next, toward the ends of your article, you, you articulate that once barriers are identified, there still remains the open question of what does happen next. You also go on to articulate a concern with how the public, if at all, will be engaged in this process. In your view, what is it that we can hope to see? Yeah, so once an agency identifies um, a more inclusive alternative or says that the budget has a particular impact on a group, um, that doesn't mean that it's automatically going to happen. This is going to take further implementation by the agency. Sometimes it may have a budgetary impact and the president can submit a budget, but that doesn't mean that that is what Congress is going to appropriate. Um, some changes also may require new legislation um, and the president doesn't have the power to do that alone. So I really appreciate the work that the EO is directing that agencies do because identifying barriers is actually a very important first step, but it'll, there'll need to be more work um, on the part of the president, you know, budget, budgetary work, but also in terms of Congress and in terms of civil society in order to, to make that happen. So um, 
there are a lot of people right now who are really engaging this EO and trying to make it meaningful. Um, so um, there are um, advocates and think tanks um, that are trying to think through how do you design equity assessments, which is something we talked about um, a minute ago. Um, researchers at the Brookings Institution have developed the idea of a scoring system to measure the racial impact of budget proposals. Um, right now, the budgetary impact, the fiscal impact is measured, but what if you measured the racial impact? Um, a lot of housing groups who deal with fair housing have a lot of expertise in developing impact assessments because you needed to develop those in the context of implementing the Fair Housing Act's directive to affirmatively further fair housing. And states and localities, um, as well as local advocates, have expertise in developing equity tools around um, kinds of programs and policies that promote opportunity and equity at the state and local level. And so I think that there's the possibility that the federal government could draw on some of these kinds of uh, mechanisms and tools and ideas in developing its own equity assessments. Professor Johnson, thank you so much for your incredible insight into this important discussion. Are there any parting comments you have related to this subject or other for our listeners? Well, thank you for speaking to me, Stephen, about this. This is actually a topic I feel really passionately about, not just this EO um, issue specifically, but just the idea that the federal government is not a neutral player um, when it comes to questions of equity. Its actions are either promoting um, inequity or can be used affirmatively to promote equity. So I think that this recognition of the EO that racial and other forms of inequity are, are often built into the administrate, administrative state is really important. Um, and I think it'll be really fascinating to see the ideas that emerge from this effort. As always, I want to thank our guest for her substantial and important contributions to the discussion today the American Bar Association's Administrative Law Section, the Administrative Law Review, and of course, the podcast's own Cooper Bobaturk for their continued support, resources, and work on making this podcast a continued contributor to the important discussions happening in the world of administrative law. Thank you, and see you on the next episode of A Hard Look.